0: Welcome to Mind Killer, a Dune podcast by LSG Media. Okay, we are back for episode five, Matthew, and we are diving into chapters 19 through 22. I am excited about getting through book one. Hurrah! Yeah, we will be. Yeah, <laughs> we'll be through book one by the end of this recording. Say it ain't so. Well, we're just over a third of the way there. Maybe even a little more now, which is kind of uh, exciting to know that we're pressing on. Uh, last we left off, old uh, old UA told the duke to remember the tooth, and remember the tooth. Remember, go to your dentist. <laughs> remember the tooth. I am not treacherous. Wait, yes, I am. But. Why don't we start off with the chapter heading here? Do you want to give people uh, just a heads up on what page you're on in your book, and I'll do the same?
1: Yeah, yep, yep. In my uh, Penguin paperback, the new paperback, uh, this is on page 263 is where we're starting, and we're going to end on page 324, the end of
0: book one. Ooh, baby. Um, uh, Now, I'm reading out of this uh, Frank Herbert hardcover, as you guys know, uh, with a series introduction by Neil Gaiman, uh, Penguin Galaxy or what have you. And I'm on page 205, and I'm reading through 253, so about just a, just under 50 pages thereabouts. So pretty thick here, quite a bit of content yeah. to get through. But I'm excited about it. So let's dive in, baby. Why
1: don't you start this chapter heading? Alrighty, a short one. There should be a science of discontent. People need hard times and oppression to develop psychic muscles. From collected sayings of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. Number one fan. Still holding it down. Holding it down 24-7. I'm glad she's
0: safe. Because nobody else I care about is safe, apparently.
1: I know we still haven't met her yet, but I just imagine her locked away in a dusty library room just writing all day long about (laughs) Muad'Dib.
0: This is is like a Rapunzel tale. She's going to throw her hair out the window for him to climb. (laughs) Exactly. My (laughs) my hero. (laughs) Maybe he'll show up someday. But (laughs) this chapter, again, we know that we are now in the midst of attack. We're in the midst of chaos. Uh, the Harkonnens, uh, with the assistance of the Sardukar, have started their treachery, and we kick things off in episode five with chapter nineteen, Matthew, with Jessica waking up in the darkness, yeah. premonition, stillness around her, her mouth feeling strange. I love the way uh, I love the way Herbert writes people regaining consciousness. It's yeah. just so much uh, care is taken with the way he, he describes it without just saying, oh, she felt tired or sluggish or, or other lazy kind of prose. He really gets into all of the things that you might feel in that given moment combined with her Benny jesseret awareness as to the situation where she remembers there had been movement in the darkness, Matthew. Something wet and pungent slapped against her face, filling her mouth, hands grasping for her. She gasps. One indrawn breath, sensing the narcotic in the wetness, consciousness had receded, sinking her into a black bin of terror, and she thought, "'It has come!' How simple it was to subdue the Bene Gesserit. All it took was treachery. Hawat was right. We know she just had a very long discussion, uh, interrogation, a verbal fencing, uh, maybe even a verbal duel with Hawat that uh, that sometimes bordered on violence. And here right. she is, a Benny Gesserit, map. What do you think
1: of this? Taken unaware in the dark. Right, right. I just love, I mean that is not something she could have foreseen. Like, that moment of vulnerability. Like, anybody is susceptible to that. And yes, I, It's got to sting all the further as a Bene Gesserit with all of their their well-laid plans to <laughs> think that, fuck, I didn't see this one coming. Indeed. And I love that moment, too, of her, of her admitting, at least to herself, that, you know, Hawat was insisting that it was a traitor, that it was, you know, somebody mm-hmm. was a traitor in their midst. And she was starting to wonder if it was more of an arrangement between, you know, people who are already there, who maybe aren't even traitors, but just some huge ploy of distraction. Yes. And now she has to admit, yep, Hawat was right. He yes. was fucking right.
0: Absolutely. Uh, it's brutal. And we get what this- a terrifying moment. What a terrifying moment. And she starts to, you know, figure out where she is, where's my son- What's, what's Leto's fate? And this moment where she says, okay, let me, let me calm myself and become alert. And we read, the ungainly thumping of her heartbeats evened, shaping, shaping out time. She counted back. I was unconscious about an hour. She closed her eyes, focused her awareness onto the approaching footsteps. That small paragraph is a huge paragraph in terms of world building as far as I'm concerned. Because one of the things we that Mohaim has talked about in, in, or, or talked about in those early chapters was this idea of looking back through feminine past, right? We hear about right. this ability to see back in time. And essentially what she's able to do is stop, consider how many heartbeats have happened, which she couldn't have kept in her mind while unconscious, but is able to go back through her own biology and go okay it's clicked this many times i know that that's how long i was unconscious that is completely fascinating to me
1: <laughs> right that is what i love about it is that it verges on superpower but it it doesn't it doesn't go there it doesn't go all the way there and i mean i think we can get into that as well with paul like i love i love the way herbert establishes almost superhuman abilities Um, without them them going into, like, the realm of magic or being truly beyond, you know, human capability because this is just essentially, like, heightened awareness, extremely heightened awareness that we already have, and it's just been trained and honed into, like, this fine tool. Indeed, indeed. And perhaps we'll see some more overt manipulation
0: from them uh, in these next couple of uh, chapters here. But she counts four people. She considers what's going on, and that's when she hears... You are awake. Do not <laughs> pretend. And of course, she is confronted by probably the last person, or maybe with the worst person she expected to see here, which is the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen standing over her in the room that Paul had been sleeping mm, in, too. Indeed.
1: Just adding to the menace.
0: And uh, he says, Listen, we know the drug was timed. The drug was timed. But we know you're awake. This immediately makes her go, How could they have timed it to our physiology without, Aha, Dr. UA?
1: That's it. In that
0: instant, she believes it had to have been
1: UA. Right, right. Again, more just like heightened awareness and putting those pieces together in that moment. Like she's just, God, it's such a fucking detective. Indeed.
0: And that's when uh, Piter DeVries enters the scene. And uh, his, his, as you say, Baron, the voice was tenor. It touched her spine with a wash of coldness. She had never heard such a chill voice. To one with the Benny Gesserit training, the voice screamed, killer. <laughs> that is amazing, too. She can tell by his uh, elocution, as it were. Is that a fancy word? that there you go that <laughs> he's a killer she can tell he's a killer from his voice from his voice by her training
1: right right mm. dude this what I, what I love about this we lead right in here to to the baron having another interesting little test that he wants to play out with with piter that he even he, he comes along and says i have a surprise for yeah, piter yes. he thinks he has come here to collect his reward you lady jessica but i wish to demonstrate a thing that he does not really want you and this mm-hmm. goes on to him essentially saying jessica or the entirety of the duke's you know the, realm, the duchy Duke, of a trade his duchy. yeah right mm-hmm. which do you actually want the one that is a symbol for power or the one that is actual power you could have many women and more mm.
0: do you do you love how jessica watches the exchange between piter and hark and and, in uh in baron harkonnen first of all their exchanges are always good because they're always seething with that tarantino tension aren't they and and i love that she just i like how she she just when they're talking she's thinking to herself i can't believe the baron is not leaping to defend himself from this piter i guess he just doesn't have the training she, right. She's like, you can't don't read him. You can't read him. Like I like, you don't see the, how much he loathes you. It's, it's very interesting. And, uh, but yeah, the Baron presents this, the Duchy of Atreides or, and that's when she starts going, Oh my God is, is Leto dead. She starts to, yeah. uh, that f- silent wail begins somewhere in her mind, I believe is the quote. Right. And, right. and Piter is like, Oh, are you, do you, do you not joke with Piter? And he's like, joke. I no. Of course not. <laughs> the mother and the son are deadly. And that's when um, he's like, well, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to leave you with this choice. I'm going to send in this stone-deaf guard. He'll subdue this woman if he sees or gain control of you. He'll not pit you to an entire gag if you're on Arrakis. If you choose not to leave, he has other orders. Huh, what could those be? Ugh. To which Pider just goes, I have chosen. Just like that. <laughs> and the Baron loves <laughs> it. Such quick decision can mean only one thing. And of course, Piter <laughs> says he'll take the, the the duchy, and this is where Jessica, at the start of this conversation, she's like, "Does the Baron not see the treachery that Piter holds for him?" And now she's saying, "Oh, dumb Piter. he doesn't know the Baron's lying. He's a twisted maniac."
1: <laughs> right? And they're lying to <laughs> that each he's other. Going... and I mean, and we find out later on it's it's a quick moment, but later we find out that the Baron's actual plan with with Pyter here is to give him, uh, you know, the duchy of of Atreides but only as a ploy to make him hated uh, on, on Arrakis and then to essentially overthrow and probably kill him in uh, favor of his own nephew, Fade Ralph. Yeah, he wishes to install Fade, who he's very sweet on, and he'll use
0: Piter as a scapegoat for that. But uh, I, I like that in, 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 in all these plans within plans from uh, the Baron Harkonnen, he does things like he'll say, well, I don't really want to know because there's going to be a truth-sayer come here. It's, it's that classic yeah. <laughs> ignorance. Like, I need to keep you in the dark yeah. to protect you. I need to keep myself in the dark to protect myself from interrogation. Like, right. what, what right. you I mean, decide to do is what you decide to do. <laughs> and he
1: can't give direct orders of it. He can't speak of it. He exactly. can't know precisely what will happen because it will all be sussed out. To make a very, very dated joke... It's like the fucking Nazi from Hogan's Heroes. I see nothing. I see <laughs> nothing. absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> just covering his eyes and walking out of the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I love that that is something that hangs over the Baron. That even in the midst of him, uh, you know, successfully executing his plan of destroying, you know, Duke Leto and and destroying their fiefdom on Arrakis. And, and, you know, essentially driving out his son and his wife, like this is all, you know, it's, it's horrible and tragic for us, the readers, because we're on the side of the Atreides. But you're like, this is a seemingly a smashing success for the Baron and his plans. Yes. But even, even with that success there are so many strings attached. Like, this is not just something he gets to just do and, all right, and tomorrow we own Arrakis again and that's that, you know, clap, dust the dust our hands and we're we're done and we're just, you know, living the fucking spoils of all this. Mm-hmm. No, like, he still has so many questions uh, hanging over his head in regards to the, to the emperor, in regards to the Bene Gesserit, to the guild. Like, there are so many strings attached to this victory that even he in this moment can't, Fully enjoy it. He has to walk away from it. He has to not know what's going to happen to royalty, and that's that's kind of what we come to realize is the main issue with this, and why he has to walk away is they're fucking royalty. Yes. they're not supposed to just be brutally murdered. That is not. It's not canly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he talks about that actually uh, in in some of these next chapters when, when it comes to leto and sort of the the torture of being in the position leto finds himself as we know uh, completely <laughs> completely paralyzed which we'll get to in a minute but all of the strings attached do make this interesting and we see that that uh, piter himself learns from the baron's example because he's like well if the plan was to take them in the desert and there is to be no evidence then i i leave that in your discretion and he just passes it right down to these house guards and uh, the deaf guard and the other guy, and he's like, take them out. There can be no evidence, but I don't need to know what happened. He doesn't. He right. also fears the truth, I believe, Jessica thinks, realizing uh, that that Piter is going to do the same
1: thing. It's interesting to, you know, Piter being a mentat. It's interesting his, his specific dialogue, the way he says it. Uh, take them into the desert as the traitor suggested for the boy. His plan is a good one. The worms will destroy all evidence. Their bodies must never be found. Mm-hmm. That's honestly the most specific he gets, but he you'll note that he's extremely elusive to not say what action will be taken, what will be done to them, mm-hmm. and he even says you know as he as he's leaving the room, I follow my baron's example, take them where the traitor said. he doesn't name the place, he right. doesn't say what will be done right just yep what what the traitor said he doesn't
0: need the court he doesn't need the exact coordinates or anything that can be actually tied to some sort of material evidence he can't. Actually, it's not even material, but it, just nothing that can be traced to an exact spot. That can't happen for Piter. He doesn't want right. that because he knows the truth sayers get their answers. they, they You know, if, you, if you're if you sitting before Mohaim, you're fucked. She's going to know right. exactly what you're talking. She's going to know all your lies. She's going to expose you easily. Exactly. If you know, then she will know. Then she will know. <laughs> and I like the idea that the position of deaf guards to to sort of prevent use of the voice. Jessica's happy to realize that Paul is in fact there. And uh, and and she's she's relieved to know that Paul is alive. He's also wrapped up. He's going to be taken in this small glimmer of help from UA, which was UA's plan was to take them out there. But UA has made other plans, right, for them out there, which is nice. So UA's like, yeah, take them. That's where I would take them. Take them out into the desert. But UA's saying that for a reason.
1: (laughs) Right, right. I do love I love finding out what uh, how UA is still intervening in his own in his own ways. Exactly. Paul, uh, Paul, uh, we get a little
0: POV on Paul here and he knows instantly his own captivity was plain enough to bed with a capsule prescribed by UA awakening to find mm-hmm. himself bound to this litter. Perhaps a similar thing had befallen her logic said the traitor was UA, but he f- held final decision in abeyance. There was no understanding it. A souk doctor, a traitor. <laughs> so beautiful and horrible. They start loading up the. Uh, they start loading them up onto an ornithopter, or thopter for short. And uh, they're talking about, well, she's going to be, you know, she's beautiful, she's highborn. They start getting ideas like, ooh, I never had a highborn. They're talking about maybe we'll rape her, and uh, maybe that's going to be something we end up doing. And talking about never been with a highborn lady, might never get a chance again. Uh, these guys, and, and, and we just see Jessica starts to understand where she is, her awareness returns and uh she starts to consider her situation here,
1: right? Right. Starts to just evaluate all of all of these men and kind of taking note of their, their dynamic really. And and, and and in very
0: specific yes, her their dynamic and very specific things like her restraints. She felt roughness in the strap against her left arm, realizing the strap had been almost severed, it would snap at a jerk, right? Yeah. And that's when she starts That's when she realizes. "Hmm." (laughs) (laughs) Has
1: someone prepared this for us?
0: Uh, Great. By the way, some really good uh, lines here. I like this. Where, Benny Jezrein ain't all highborn, the pilot said, but they all looks Heidi. He can see me (laughs) plain enough, Jessica thought. She brought her boundlings up onto the seat, curled into a sinuous ball, staring at Scarface. Real pretty she is, Canette said. He wet his lips with his tongue. And that's when she goes, "Aha! This is my way to manipulate these guys." Paul Paul exactly. pa- I mean, gets a little upset at this, kind of kind of loses his cool. You lay a hand on my mother, the kind of shit, right?
1: What I love because he he is playing into it. Like what I love about this this moment when they're in the ornithopter before you know any action is taken, and both Paul and Jessica are kind of evaluating their situation and evaluating their captors. What I love is that they don't, and because they can't, but they don't communicate what they might do or what their plan should be. They just start to play off of one another and they start to like basically very subtly pick up on what each each other are doing. Mm-hmm. Like Paul is kind of leaning into this, you know, the, the way they see him as, you know, the spoiled little royal son who's worried about his mommy. And like, he that's why he's like, you lay a hand on my mother. And like, I think there's even a moment where, where Jessica even thinks, yeah, Paul's pitching his voice too high. It may work though. Yes, she um, does, she does. Um, like he's putting on a good act.
0: Absolutely, and that's when she's like, these poor fools, are going to get killed as soon as they report success, right? She knows, I mean, this is a total no loose ends, end of, end of goodfellas kind of thing. Everyone's Everyone's right. got to go for the Baron's secret to remain. As you said, there's too many strings attached, and the Baron wants some of those strings tied up. Right, exactly. And that S- means
1: the people who killed them need to not exist anymore.
0: Mm, yep. Uh, and, and it gets to a point where it, it they, they start to, you know, they land at their spot. Everything starts going off. And uh, it becomes Paul simply just saying, remove her gag. Jessica felt the words uh. rolling in the air, the tone, the timbre, excellent, imperative, sharp. A slightly lower pitch would have been better, but it could still fall within this man's spectrum. Sigo, I think his name is Sigo, shifted his hands up to the band around Jessica's mouth, slipped the knot on the gag. Stop that, Kenneth ordered. Ah, shut your trap, Sigo said. Her hands have been tied. He freed the knot and the binding dropped. His eyes glittered as he studied Jessica.
1: Now you're this. screwed. It's perfect. And what I what I love about Paul using the voice here is that of course, as we know, he's the one who is still very untrained in the voice. Like, that's one of the Bene Gesserit things that he has not practiced in at all. Hence the um, blunt and, command, know. right? Exactly. And that's yeah. what I find so interesting about that is Paul knows that he's not going to be able to really manipulate them very far with the voice. What he needs to do <laughs> is free his mother, who absolutely can manipulate them with the voice. And so his one command is to remove her gag. It's like taking, you know, taking the fucking cap off of the weapon.
0: Jessica twisted her neck spat out the gag. She pitched her voice in low, intimate tones. Gentlemen, no need to fight over me. <laughs> I love it. I love this. It's I love so
1: manipulative. It's I great. love it.
0: It's it's I just love the Jedi mind trick aspect to it, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, that's it. She saw them grow tense, knowing that in the instant they were convinced of the need to fight over her. In
1: their minds, they were fighting. Right, right. And I love how she never commands them to fight; like she's literally just suggesting it through the the dropping in of those words. No need to fight over me. You mustn't disagree. Mm-hmm. Like she's just kind of planting these ideas in their head that will lead them. What I love about spinning Jesra is shit, that it, man. Absolutely, but I think it also implies that the Harkonnens, being the the vile beasts that they are, are a little more primed and ready to fight each other than most other people. Like, she might have to give a command to an, a, you know, a more level-headed Atreides person, but to them, the suggestion of fighting over her will lead to it. <laughs> I, I would agree with that. I think that she,
0: of course, the awareness that she has allows her to sort of probe for weakness if, if not in direct questioning like she was attempting with Hawa in just an observation. And then she can turn that information into actionable, uh, uh, you know, ac- actionable manipulation, which is done very much through her Benny Gesserit, the voice training. Is anyone we're fighting over, she asked. And uh, that's sure. it. That's when... Paul starts going, oh boy, here we go. Yeah, no need to fight. His hand flashed to the pilot's neck. The blow was met by a splash of metal that caught the arm and the same motion slammed into Kenneth's chest. Scarface groaned, sagged backwards against the door. Thought I was some dummy, didn't know that trick, Sego said. He brought back his hand, revealing the knife. It glittered in reflected moonlight. So he killed the guy immediately, just stabbed him, bang. Stabbed his co-pilot. So ready to do it. So horny. And what I like about this, I like that the manipulation is not perfect because he's like, okay, now for the cub. In other words, now he's going to kill Paul, like because right. that's just like, f- yeah, get, because because of her f- what she said. Actually, she's like, oh well, don't fight over me. He's like, well, I'll kill everybody to get to you. He's going full Vulcan pon far shit here. <laughs> <laughs> Too horny to think. Exactly. And and that's when she tries to, to to cause hesitation. She tells him no he doesn't need to. Uh give the boy a chance. A little enough chance he'd have out there in the sand, give him that, and you could find yourself well rewarded. So it continues. You know, the, the, the voice continues. And in he and you know, Zigo as I go, he's he's like, You're trying to trick me. They, it's funny to to imagine this working. It's like uh you don't need to see his identification. You don't need to see his identification, right? It's that, Mm -hmm. uh, it's that idea. And that's when he's like, all right, let me just cut your bonds then. Let me, let me, instead of killing you with a knife, let me free you with a knife. And as soon as he frees Paul with a knife, we get some really intense, you know, this is, uh, you know, augmented human kind of shit here, which is he lashes out with his right foot. The toe is aimed with a precision that did, Credit to his long years of training, as though all of that training focused on this instant. Almost every muscle of his body cooperated in the placement of it. The tip struck the soft part of Saigo's abdomen just below the sternum, slammed upward with terrible force over the liver and through the diaphragm to crush the right ventricle of the man's heart. He kicked him and killed him by kicking him in the (laughs) body. That's never happened ever in the history of anything, which is what makes it very special in Dune. This just precision, this training, this, this is not normal. Like Duke Leto couldn't do this. This is something reserved for Paul and his specialness,
1: right? There's both mintat and Bene Gesserit training, you know, the, the like, and I, I think you said it exactly. Like the precision of it is, is more, is more what leads to it being a killing blow than anything else. Like the fact that he can identify that one spot where he can reach and and drive that hard. That will just be an instantaneous death. Mm, indeed. So he dies. Uh, they free
0: themselves. And it, it, <laughs> and uh, that's when they realize that there is something under the seat, right?
1: Yes, indeed.
0: A bundle. Seeing a see close to her face, feeling dampness on the bundle as she removed it, realizing the dampness was the pilot's blood. Waste of moisture, she thought. I love that, by the way. And that's when the, they, they pull it out of there. They lifted the bundle from the thopter, saw her stare across the dunes toward the shield wall. He looked to see what drew her attention, saw another thopter swooping toward them, realized they'd have not time to clear the bodies out of the thopter and escape. Run! Jessica shouted. It's the Harkonnen. So there's this other thopter bearing down on them as they get out of that one out in the desert. So they're clamoring out of this, like, uh, I guess you'd say uh, just air vehicle that's landed in the desert. And as they're grabbing their stuff and moving... There's another one bearing down on them, and they just have to start running.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: A little mini cliffhanger we're left
1: with here. Mm.
0: Yeah, that's neat. Chapter 20 uh, says, Arrakis teaches the attitude of the knife, chopping off what's incomplete and saying, now it's complete because it's ended here. From the collected sayings of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. We go back to uh, UA, and uh, what I like about this is we kind of go back in time. So what we're about to read and discuss actually happens before what we just read, because of right. what is stowed under the seat. We're going to learn that UA put what is under the seat under the seat by uh, sneaking around these house guards and trying to be uh, trying to be unnoticed in his sneakiness, right? It's a good thing they all
1: dislike him because they don't care about him.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, what do you think about all that stuff uh, with with him? They're just they keep calling him traitor, and he's like these fools. They profit from my treachery, and they still call me traitor. He's he's kind of miffed about that. Like you're all
1: standing right. in this house because of me and my treachery because <laughs> I lowered the shields and let you right in. Mm-hmm. But I but I also think it makes perfect sense that. He's still a traitor. Like they wouldn't Absolutely. respect somebody who who would do that, right? Um, like the fact that you would betray, you know, everybody who'd been loyal to you, who you had given so much of your life for. That's still uh, an ignoble act to them. Absolutely, They're like, no, nobody's going to respect you. There's
0: uh, there's this there's this dialogue that you always having with this Sadokar, a Bashir of the core. So we know a high ranking member, a dangerous man, and uh, he just kind of hits the duke with his toe who's unconscious and he says this one was nothing to fear even when awake i was like damn dude <laughs> it's easy to say when he's paralyzed but uh, just the disre- <laughs> the, the open disrespect i was just oof boy poor lando was just being disrespected
1: yeah, and you 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 know it makes sense from these Sartakar everything that we have learned about them up to this point that they are just yep. the gruffest, most brutal fighters from some horrible hell planet. <laughs> and that all they do are just you, they spend their life in war somewhere sure. all the time. Yeah, they they're, just have, uh, they're they're like he's like a the
0: Red Duke. <laughs> I'm from Seleucus Secundus, man. I mean, this is nothing. <laughs> but uh, That's I like some pussy shit. <laughs> yeah, I like how the U A just the the word traitor rolls around in his head. And he just thinks about this is how I'll be remembered. Like this is how history will remember me. <laughs> remember me, right?
1: Well, he is right about that He's one. He's <laughs> right about that one. <laughs> UA, UA, a million deaths for UA. <laughs>
0: uh, uh so UA, I like I like this is just a short little uh, moment of of watching UA try to get this the ducal signet ring and this little letter and this little pack into that Thopter that he knows is going to take Paul and and jessica and i like that we have to see him you know slipping by i'm really curious how they're going to shoot this in the movie him slipping by guards bumping into him like get out of here you traitor him just sort of yeah. sliding along the hallway as he makes his way outside to the uh seat and he puts what's called a frem kit which is basically just a fancy frem in rucksack you know
1: right right and I, dude, this one, there's, a, there's a, a, a paragraph of him that I love here. I must get to the Thopter, UA thought. Mm. I must put the Ducal signet where Paul will find it. And fear struck him. If Idaho suspects me or grows impatient, which this is where I'm also learning that Idaho has been in communication with UA and is a part of this plan. Yes. If he doesn't, if he doesn't wait and go exactly where I told him, Jessica and Paul will not be saved from the carnage. I'll be denied even the smallest relief from my act. I just love that final line is so good. Absolutely. I, I feel like, and that is again, why I still just feel for UA. Like I still, I mostly He's a just very feel tragic character. He's extremely tragic. Like, and all he wants is at this point is to like, what is, what is the last pieces of the people who I actually care about? What are the last pieces that I can save? Like I'm I'm having to basically throw them completely to the, you know, the mercy of these fucking wolves. <laughs> but what little thing can I do? what, how can i still reach out and repair something for them
0: right it 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 is hard it, you know when you see all of the carnage that ensues as a result of his treachery it, you it you one does or well, i do sometimes struggle to be sympathetic towards him but i can easily recognize how tragic the character is and very well written very human and that's what i like yeah. about him i think he's just a well written character and i like that to put ourselves in his shoes right now at this point in the story, to just think that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to ensure what you just dis- described. He's also thinking soon I will know, soon I will see the Baron and I will know and the Baron will encounter a small tooth. Just uh, th- the position he's in, he must know there has to be a part of UA and all his Suk school training and, and being among the Atreides and knowing how the Harkonnen are and what this feud is about and how it's gone on for generations. He must yeah. know there has to be a part of him where he's like I'm not going to live many more days. I my life is coming to an end. It must be. I just want right. knowledge. I just want to know. I think I think one, once you, you imagine the regret he would feel like once everything kicks off, once it starts going. I mean, he murders the Shadow Mapes. He's the guy that killed her. And um and, and once it's just that point of no return where you go, wow, look at this, look what I've wrought upon this house. I mean, this is crazy. <laughs> right. And, and now, if, it, I mean, now that it's done and the signet ring is there and I'm trying to do something that I can, maybe, uh, maybe this small tooth will help. And maybe, who knows, maybe things could have gone a lot worse for Jessica and Paul if it wasn't UA that was the one that was plied against them. Because obviously he's in communication with Duncan, he is trying to do something to Redeem himself, right. even the slightest, by helping others
1: survive. It's good stuff, very, right. very well written, He'll, man. Totally agree. And I do, I would say the one slight that I, I do kind of hold against UA where I'm like, ah, that's kind of stupid of you, man, is with how much he truly hates the Harkonnens mm. and knows how, how brutal and savage they are, and also how you know, backstabbing and uh, dishonest they are. I'm like, there's no part of you that thought once they were, they were saying that they have, you know, your Juana and you know, that you need to do this for them. There's no part of you that went, they're never going to give her back. Like they're going, like she's dead. Like she's dead. These are the Harkonnens we're talking about. Like you'd almost have to assume that if that's the threat they're holding over your head, then she's already gone. Like, they're not sure. going to, you're, you're never going to see her again. They're monsters. Absolutely. Um, and it just
0: shows you how clouded he was by the desperation of knowing. Mm-hmm. But exactly. you're absolutely right. It It's an overstep. And that's, we see it a lot in this book. And, and we see, we, we've we talked about this since LSG Media started, Matt, which at this point is about eight years ago. We've talked about this idea of characters making decisions that lead to consequences which 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 don't always have to equate in their death. One of the things we were critical about The Walking Dead with it was well well, they made a bad choice and died. That, that's starting to become boring. It was novel for a while, now it's boring. One of the things mm-hmm. that was right. great about mid mid seasons of Game of Thrones was a character making a decision that had repercussions down the line. That might not necessarily mean their own their own character's death, but something else. And we see that in this Yes, this does lead to U.A.'s death, but this decision that he made, we're seeing in pages and pages just everything that has happened as a result of his decision to just go forward with the treachery, even with his knowledge and training, even knowing how the Harkonnens are. The desperation is so high, and we see so much of that. So much of this book is, you know, the moralities, the the morality of the individual, and then the ethics, right? And, And just what one person might think is right or wrong versus what another person might think is right or wrong and how they're going to go forward in this, what am I trying to say in this setting and how they're going to navigate all of this treachery and what that's going to be. And and how many of them will be slaves to their emotions and their passions? How many of them will make decisions based on that, which if they wouldn't have, maybe they would have lived longer and vice versa. And that's what I like about this book so far is, is decisions being made. You know, all the way back to the first chapter, we're talking about Yui. What about Jessica? Jessica is told by the Reverend Mohiam, "Listen, you made a choice to have a son, and now the Duke is going to die." I mean, she kind of said that. Yeah, think about that's that. True. That's crazy. One decision, and that's it. that—that's <laughs> one of the one of the really epic things about the the Dune novel to me is that kind of stuff right there.
1: Right right that her one decision to avoid having a girl and seal the breach between the houses was then like to to the eye of the reverend mother who already sees these plans and is a part of these plans knows that without that breach being sealed okay then the atreides are done like Mm -hmm. you have you have cut off the other possibilities now
0: yeah it's it's intense man all right let's move to chapter 21 Matthew and are you up I think you're up
1: yes indeed there is a legend that the instant the Duke Leto Atreides died, a meteor streaked across the skies above his ancestral palace on Caladan. From introduction to a child's history of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. Hmm. Ah, oh, so tragic. Indeed.
0: The Baron Vladimir Harkonnen stood at a viewport of the grounded lighter he was using as a command post. So this is Baron Vladimir Harkonnen's gloating moment, his victory lap. But we see it mm-hmm. so mired by, as you already said, the strings, and I think this chapter gives us a very interesting perspective on the baron, and it gives us a lot of perspective on, as you hinted at last chapter, this idea of how are we to treat
1: royalty yes yeah <laughs> what is the, what is the way that royalty should be dispatched in that's happening.
0: And I like this idea of explosive artillery, and, and him just thinking, just hearing the boom, boom. As all of the Duke's men have fled out of the house into the desert, and they're just shelling the rocks with explosives. Yeah. Just kind of old school World War Two, just shelling rocks where these guys are trying to escape, take cover. Huh. And in the even Baron, says,
1: who who would think of reviving artillery in this day of shields? Indeed. <laughs> And he's so proud of
0: himself. He's so proud because he's like, well, the emperor is going to be so happy that I did not waste our mutual force. He's thinking politically here, right? right. He's that thinking I'm that, not
1: going to get Sardaukar killed. Absolutely.
0: Why would I do that? Let's just shell those rocks and keep our guys safe. Why waste fighting men? I pity to waste such fighting men as the Dukes, he thought. And then he said pity should be cruel. Failure was by definition expendable. <laughs> Pretty cool. But he goes to this whole thing where he's just sort of watching them shell. And then the door opens up and Pider slides in, followed by this man named Uman Kudu, the captain of the Baron's personal guard. And they roll in. And I like how Pider touches his finger to his forehead, just his finger, in a mocking salute. Good news, my lord. I love that. Just a tap. Just tapping his eyebrow. (laughs) (laughs) Just a shitty little salute.
1: Like such a just, eh, fuck you. And you know what I love about that?
0: How the Baron's thought process just goes, soon I must remove him, right? He's like, this guy needs to die. I'm, I'm done with this guy. <laughs> he's almost outlasted his usefulness, almost reached the point of positive danger to my person. And that's when uh, he's like, Fader Alth is going to take over, as you already mentioned. But I love that. I love how he's just thinking. You Just the hatred. Again, the first thing Jessica noticed when they exchanged a the volley of dialogue was how they had it in for each other and not just right. not just a perceptive person you know at, at some sort of di- uh, uh, diplomatic meeting where you're like oh these these people don't seem to really like each other no, they positively loathe one another right to the death but they benefit <laughs> from each other's presence right and right up until they don't and then it's whoever strikes first yeah exactly yeah. whoever has it and uh well where's the traitor i must give the traitor his reward right if they start talking about ua Harkonnen wants to know, where is Yue? Oh, God. This this scene, again. Oh.
1: Poor bastard.
0: So they roll Yue in. Yue's like, all right, it's time. <laughs> so Yue comes in, and uh, he starts to consider, he had seen the subtle betrayers' betrayals in the Baron's manor. Juana was indeed dead, gone far beyond their reach. Otherwise, there'd still be a hold on the weak doctor. The Baron's manner showed there was no hold. It was ended.
1: Dude, the Baron's dialogue here is so cruel, too, where Oof. where <laughs> he's asking, you know, Yue is asking about his half of the bargain, and he's mm-hmm. like, the letter of the bargain, eh? And I, what was I to do in return? Like, acting yeah, like yeah. he doesn't even fucking remember. Like, it's just the smallest oh. nothing to him. Heart must be pounding in that moment, right? Oh, God.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but, um... And I love it when the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen always keeps his promises. I told you I'd free her from the agony and permit you to join her. So be it. Piter's blue eyes took a glazed look. His movement was cat-like in its sudden fluidity. The knife in his hand glistened like a claw as it flashed into UA's back. That is a great description. It's funny because we don't, we don't, we don't really know what. Is is Pider deadly? Is he just really smart? And we see him unhesitatingly and with with the graceful precision, just stab this guy in the back. No big deal. Yeah. <laughs> and and I like that. Uh, you always like you. You think you have defeated me. He's 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 giving him that classic
1: death curse. Yes. Hell yeah. He scares you the think Baron. I. You think I did not know what I bought for my wanna Hmm. One
0: of the things I think is so cool about this moment is this simple line that gives us a lot of perspective, which is the Baron thinking about how Pider killed Yue. So that's how he kills by his own hand, the Baron thought. It's well to know.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it makes you wonder if he ordered Piter specifically to do it so that he could witness that.
0: That's a very good point.
1: That's a very
0: good point. And the other point I'd like to make on that is that it's it's pretty intense to think he's never slain anyone in front of the Baron before.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? He's always been off on orders to probably assassinate, but never in the same room. Right,
0: absolutely. And here he goes, killing, uh, killing poor Ua. Stabbed him in the back. And
1: poor bastard.
0: Yep, I could never bring myself to trust a traitor. The Baron said, "Not even a traitor I created." But he's mm-hmm. bothered. I like that he's thinking in my moment. In my moments, what do we know about the Baron Harkonnen, Matthew, from chapter two? What he Mm, wants is for Duclato to know, right? Let me let you answer. I'm sorry. I was being more rhetorical, but go ahead.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I was going to say that he's meticulous and calculating and that he would not let that slip by. Like, wait, why would he say? Right. Not only
0: that, but what what else was he dreaming of? He must know that I encompass his destruction in totality. So this is the right. greatest moment for the Baron Harkonnen. He is he is ready to to gloat over his victory over Leto. Leto is a paralyzed slab of meat waiting to for all manner of hell that awaits him at the hands of uh, of the Baron. And he is distracted by you think you defeated me. What did he mean? That this is such a dune thing but I love that the psych, psychological warfare here, UA's parting words have really put our, uh, the Baron in a bad headspace. He's like, it's throwing him off. He's like, I should be able to celebrate this moment. I, that cur- Damn that cursed doctor through all eternity, he thinks. Because he's, <laughs> he's robbing me of the moment that we've been moving on about for 200 pages. He's taking it from me. <laughs> uh, it's great. I always wanted to be gloating and fat and happy. Indeed, indeed. And that's when more things believe, more things start to happen, right? And that's when he thinks, hmm, what else? What about the boy? Where's the mother? Where's the crew? They're dead? What? All dead. The crew? Uh, so uh, wait a minute. You're telling me the crew on the Thopter is dead. That's what the Baron's beside himself. How can he celebrate? It's almost
1: like becoming an empty prize that he has later, isn't it? exactly yeah because it's not everything like you already said it's not the totality of mm-hmm. the atreides line that's if it's not that then it's nothing to him
0: absolutely uh this discussion of what they believe is probably hawat which is excellent one of the duke's men obviously escaped in it my lord killed our pilot and escaped which of the duke's men it was a clean silent killing my lord hawat <laughs> right they just assume it was hawat that did the killing or maybe idaho or halleck any top exactly. lieutenant, <laughs> the Duke's got a lot of
1: good <laughs> men. We're learning, and this is yeah. This is where we learned that there was a thopter. Uh, another thopter of theirs stolen, and I think it's one of them.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, they have no. They have no bearing on Kynes. Kynes is missing. They have no idea where he is. There's no ducal signet ring. Nothing is here, and oh boy, that's not going to be good, right? <laughs> <laughs>
1: you killed the doctor too soon the baron said yes <laughs> we should have talked to him more
0: possibilities he scowled he's mad now he's thinking about ah like it's funny because everything leading up to just about him having the duke pushed in front of him as a as a motionless piece of flesh was perfect and then in an instant Strangely enough, the catalyst of all this information seemed to be uh, U.A.'s death, right? Which I like. There's some tragic irony there of the Baron going, wait a minute, this is not as clean as I thought, is it? Right, right. <laughs> it's not all completed. It's not done. Yep. He knows that Paul and Jessica have escaped. And uh, we have, meanwhile, Leto is unconscious this whole time and he's starting to remember the tooth. What does this mean? He, you know, he's, the way they describe him trying to see the Baron's fuzzy gray shape. Uh, just imagining these drugs affecting his system, the way he's struggling to to fight back the blackness that's crowding his vision.
1: Yes, dude. I love, I absolutely love, uh, my favorite descriptions, honestly, are the ones that are in the final chapter, but these descriptions yeah. of the Duke in this sort of malaise and, and mm. unable to, to move, it's so painful. Because it is, it, it is. You know, We know how capable and strong of a person he is, and have to watch him be so subdued. But the descriptions are so fucking good. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to find the, the, the paragraph that I, that I love. But basically, When he's you know, sitting in the chair. Talk, right, yeah, when he's in the chair at the, at the table. Um, even this, you know, Leto, Leto sensed increasing definition in his surroundings. The chair beneath him mm-hmm. took on firmness. The bindings were sharper. Like, yes. what a great way to describe starting to get back in touch with your, with your body. Like, being able to become more physically aware of where you're at. Yes. Like how it slowly fades back in. It's excellent. Great
0: writing. Absolutely. And this gets into what we've been teasing here, which is, it pained the Baron that this could not be handled privately, just between the two of them. To have others see royalty in such straits, it set a bad precedent. (laughs) I like that. I like that there's this weird, uh, dare I say, streak of honor in, in the Baron when it comes to this. I mean, insofar as he conceives of it, he thinks of it.
1: Right. And I do think there's a selfishness to that of, of, course. of thinking that if people see the vulnerability of royalty, see them as just a damaged human being, you know, being, you know, suffering, uh then that could befall him. <laughs> that, yes. Like well, if 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 the if the kind of like icon of royalty is is brought down to a human level like this, then th- doesn't it do the same for my own, you know, status? Yes.
0: And uh, and we learn that Now the Baron and Piter are presented with this choice. We need more information, so we're probably going to torture the Duke to try to get information that we need out of him, which means they're waiting out his his, uh, anesthesia to wear off so they can start doing some damage to him. Meanwhile, we hear somebody being tortured to death in the room nearby, which is one of the things that later grows conscious of, is hearing it, right? Yes. Which is
1: horrific, by the way. Which he's afraid, at, at first, he's afraid it could be Idaho. Right. Think that he, maybe he was discovered. Because they say that they they captured, you know, the baron says, we penetrated the disguise of your men quite easily. The eyes, you know, he insists he was sent among the Fremen to spy on them. Um, and so they had found one of his men, I guess, probably in a still suit.
0: Mm-hmm. <clears throat>
1: but but, uh, but all of the barons, all of
0: the barons' victories are being laid to rest. You had an emergency plan. Where have your woman and the boy been sent? Where is the ring? Does the boy have it? All of these unanswered questions is not exactly how the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen wanted to enjoy his gloating moment. Is it?
1: (laughs) And do you think, you know, this is just a side, a side question, but do you think that the Baron just wants the ring of, of, of the Duke Leto just as a trophy? Like that's all that matters to him, but he really wants it.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I thought a lot about that and I think maybe it has something to do with that. Um, I, I don't. I don't know if there's any implication beyond the 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 fact that it it is there, there's significance to the signet ring and, and letters and stuff like that. I don't think there's any strategic advantage. I I think it's purely emotional.
1: Right, right. That it's 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 a little treasure of his victory. Yeah, they describe some of the uh,
0: ideas of torture and you know putting you know burning people's skin and things of this nature. And he's like, I don't want it to come to this, dear cousin. He calls him right or share a cousin. I did not want to come to this. Uh, and that's when Leto recalls a thing Gurney Halleck had said, once seeing a picture of the Baron, and I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. <laughs> that's awesome, man.
1: <laughs> so good. It sounds like something out of Revelation. <laughs> it's, it's talking so, about and, the and final absolutely,
0: dragon. And Halleck is so poetic. We've learned that over time. But absolutely I, I like how they're discussing, they're using the word bought almost like currency. Like you don't, you, you don't think you can be bought with pain. Absolutely, you can. And Leto even thinks while they're saying this, absolutely I can because everyone can. That's just the way it is. But yeah. he's yeah. never going to get that chance, is he? Because uh, uh, time to quit stalling with this fool Duke, this stupid soft fool who didn't realize how much hell there was Sonny him, only a nerve's thickness away. And uh, that's the Baron getting real uh, psychotic, thinking, uh, you know, I will, I'm, um, I'm, I'm the, I'm the predator. They're the rabbits. He's starting to get wild. He's mad now.
1: And yeah, yeah no, that was, I, that was something I forgot to to talk about earlier. I loved, um, actually, let me see if I can go back and find it because I feel like there is no better summation of the Baron Harkonnen's thoughts on human beings and thoughts on power uh, than that early paragraph in this chapter where he's saying. You know, he smiled more broadly, laughing at himself. Pity should be cruel. Failure was, by definition, expendable. The whole universe sat there, open to the man who could make the right decisions. The uncertain rabbits had to be exposed, made to run for their burrows. Else, how could you control them and breed them? Right. He pictured his fighting men as bees routing the rabbits, and he thought the day hums sweetly when you have enough bees working for you. Yeah, and I mean, he literally envisions his own men as as worker bees, as little drones to be manipulated into his cause. Yes, uh, like, and, and it just is his view of humanity is so stark; it's divided between bees, killer bees, and rabbits. And everybody is a rabbit to him, all cowardly and weak.
0: And if we narrow our focus in a little on that, like that's his wider view. If we narrow his focus in a little, he thinks he saw himself suddenly as a surgeon exercising endless supple scissor dissections, cutting away the masks from fools, exposing the hell beneath rabbits, all of them, how they cowered when they saw the carnivore, right? It's just, wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh you are a maniac sir you're a crazy person
1: right like he he has no shades of gray he has no like seeing humanity and seeing you know through enough any sort of lens of honor and like we kind of even talked a little bit about this idea that he he is a little sensitive to royalty being put in this position but i still think that mostly it comes not from a sense of honor that this is something that shouldn't happen to these people, that they should be you know, treated more respectfully. It's more a sense of, I just don't want that to happen to me. <laughs> I don't like the precedent being set that this could happen.
0: It's, it's, definitely a, it's definitely a factor. I think another factor might be him just thinking, you know, it's int- and, and not even with regret, more analytical, like, how have we come to this, right? This is what we are now.
1: Right, right, that
0: it's gotten so bad. This is just what we do, and that's how we exist, and this is how I see myself, and this is the way things have to be done. <laughs> so. this, uh, this thought Lato has is tough. This is sad. He found himself remembering an it antenna is. kite up dangling in the shell blue sky of Calan and Paul laughing with joy at the sight of it. He remembered sunrise here in Arrakis, colored strata of the shield wall, uh, mellowed by dust haze. It's crazy. That last thought he's going to have here is just of his son flying a kite. And that's when he's like, fuck it. Time to bite down on the tooth.
1: Oh, man. This is such a moment. Such a moment (laughs) where he bites onto the, the, the capsule. It breaks. He opens his mouth and expels all the poison vapor he can. And then, much like he was already, you know, when he was drugged, The Baron grew smaller, a figure seen in a tightening tunnel. Mm. Leto heard a gasp beside his ear, the silky-voiced piter. Um, And then, you know, this this moment of everything blurring together, I love the way it's written. Leto sensed memories rolling in his mind, the old toothless mutterings of hags, the room, the table, the Baron, a pair of terrified eyes, blue within blue, all compressed around him in ruined symmetry. I just love that in the moment of his death. It's so good. Like, the moment of his death is the present and the past all sort of blending together as his brain shuts down. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, these final thoughts of his family and Caladan and his home, uh, intermixed with seeing the scattered panic of the people actually in the room and how he's so unaffected by their panic. Like he's, he's allowing himself to, to, to kind of release into these memories. in this final moment, the symmetry in described as symmetry,
0: I found remarkably insightful and, uh, in haunting the way the yeah. way the way Herbert describes it as a symmetry, because on the one hand you have you know death and terror and Piter's blue eyes as he gasps for air, and, and then you have like these other thoughts of things, and uh, they exist in that <laughs> symmetry, which is fascinating. But this shit, <laughs> a
1: ruined symmetry, yeah, a ruined symmetry, it's, yep.
0: It's good. And the Baron realizes his shield was on a low setting,
1: and he escapes death. This is such a bummer. (laughs) Such a bummer. You're like, fuck. He was right there, right there. The Duke dies. He has that final sad last thought, uh, uh, this random thought of the day the flesh shapes and the flesh the day shapes. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Silence. And this moment, you're you're just like, oh, God, I hope it (laughs) works. I hope it (laughs) works. And it fucking didn't. Didn't yep. get him. He's still standing. The Baron felt no gratitude to
0: Piter. The fool had got himself killed. And uh that's when he's like, ah, well, that's unfortunate. I'll have to change my <laughs> and, Piter. I'll have to change my plan with Piter, what I was gonna do with him, right? He's, but but just this idea of he escapes death. He, he escapes, he's lucky.
1: Oh, <laughs> the bastard. The mm. fat bastard. <laughs>
0: And that's when this uh, man, Nafud, uh, comes in, a guard corporal. Uh, He was addicted to Samuta, uh, the drug-music combination that played itself in the deepest consciousness, a useful item of information. So this character enters the frame because obviously people are running in to see what happened. What happened, they heard the commotion, they heard falling and, and gasping and yelling. And this guard rolls in, and the first impression we get of the guard is what we get from the Baron's perspective, which is what he's addicted to, which is what we can use to apply him in the future. I mean, this is how the guy thinks he's a sociopath.
1: (laughs) Exactly. That's the only thing he's taken note of. Not his skill as a, as a soldier, not, you know, how well he's performed how much knowledge he has. Just, "Mm, I got something over on this guy. I can use
0: him. Yes. And, (laughs) uh, and he seems kind of efficient. So congratulations. Uh, Learn from the fate of your predecessor. That's right. it. You're, hopefully you're, you're hired. Hopefully
1: nobody <laughs> blows fucking poison dust into your face.
0: <laughs> yes. It could probably happen. And we get this great moment of a new type of fear. And this is our first example of observing the Baron dealing with somebody who he doesn't have actual power over. And it's f- interesting to watch him have to deal with this
1: Bashar of the core. Right. Right. And and being so worried about losing, you know, he can't lose face before his men, that he still has to kind of keep some air of authority, even though he knows he absolutely has to let this guy through. Yep. He has disdain that the Baron noted the disdain that the Sadakar
0: had for him. No salute, no, no, no respect towards the Baron of a major house. He finds that (laughs) appalling. And he, in the, in, in the sardukas says, do not prevent me from seeing you. Your men will let me in. Cause they were probably like, no, no, something's going on. They probably kept him out of the room and he charged through and he said, if they stop never again, will that happen? I mean, we see this guy's wielding
1: an authority, this Colonel. And this is again, I mean, <clears throat> to go back into this, like the villainy of, of the Baron and why I think, you know, we've, we've talked about this a little bit before, I think one of the biggest problems with David Lynch's 1984 Dune was the portrayal of the Baron that he was just this wild-eyed villain Comic who was more of like a you know like a right like a, more of like a a silly madman character mm-hmm. um and I love that you know we get this moment here when he when he's noting the 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 colonel the Bashar colonel of the Sardaukar marching towards him where he says Baron the Baron did not fool himself. He knew that one legion was perfectly capable of turning on the Harkonens and overcoming them. Yes. Like he is not foolhardy. He is not he is not self-aggrandizing, really. No, he's actually not at all. quite realistic. Um and he very much there's no there's not he's not going to be destroyed by his own pride. Right. Um that's what I like about him. He's too smart for that. He's quite he's smart. Very, he's quite competent. Yeah. He's quite
0: dangerous. I mean, he's standing in House Atreides, the victor. Yeah, I mean, that should <laughs> tell you enough. what you need to know already, <laughs> right?
1: <laughs> For sure.
0: But this is, I, I like uh, i like how the Sardaukar on orders, direct orders from the emperor, wants to make sure that his royal cousin died cleanly. So even though the emperor's in on this and he's dispatched these killers from Seleuza Secundus, even though he's he's making bedfellows with the likes of Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, he still wants to make sure that Duke Leto dies cleanly because, let's be real, the Emperor probably knows a bit about the Baron in his ways. Oh, and sure. <laughs> that's when he's just like, well, he's already dead. And the colonel's like, dude,
1: what? <laughs> <laughs> dude, that moment is so good because he goes, the Duke's already dead. And then he waves a hand to dismiss him. Yeah. The Colonel Bashar remained planted facing the Baron. Not by flicker of eye or muscle did he even acknowledge he had been dismissed. <laughs> How? How? <laughs> like, awesome. Not fucking moving. You have no power over me. I, I
0: love that moment too where the Baron's just thinking, well, I don't really want to open the door and show you the shit show of a room where Piter's
1: dead. <laughs> right? like, I, don't
0: want, <laughs> I really don't want you to see my Menta assassin and a couple other guys croaked because, well, you know, He spit this. It's this whole thing because he knows it's going to get back to the emperor, and that's going to damage his reputation. That that it wasn't that that there. Again, we know that the baron knows that there are loose ends, and he's tying them up. What he doesn't want is for those loose ends to reach the awareness of the emperor, because that becomes a problem for him.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: (laughs) But he's honest. He says, "Well, by his own hand, if you must know." And that's when the colonel says, "I will see the body now." And that's when the Baron just thinks, "Damnation!" This sharp-eyed Tartakal will see the room before things been changed. He's hoping his guys are in there sweeping up.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know. Just wait. I've got a couple of gnomes in there dusting and moving <laughs> things aside. Just give them five more minutes. I would have
0: been like, "No, the poison's still in there, real thick. You got to give it a minute, right?"
1: Yeah, that's a good ploy, honestly. Right. <laughs> like it was poison. You got to stay out for at least uh, ten minutes.
0: Yep. But uh, I, I like it. I like how uh, I'll not be put off. You're not being put off. I had nothing from my emperor. And uh, that's when uh, Nafud takes him in. This way, sir. <laughs> and the Baron just thinks, insufferable. Now the emperor will know how I slipped up. He'll recognize it as a sign of weakness. Right? He's all bent out of shape. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's when Gotta he's... keep that reputation up. And I love it. I love how he's ruined. He's like, ah, that slippery duke. I'll have to put Raban over this damnable planet without restraint. I must spend my own blood to put Arrakis into a proper condition for accepting Fade. He's saying I will sacrifice Raban to elevate Fade.
1: God, yeah, he's a sick man. <laughs> <laughs> makes me r- wonder, Raban. It makes me wonder more about his relationship with Fade because you know that the one chapter we got to see of them, you know, interacting. Fade seems. So fucking insufferably aloof. uninterested, aloof. Yeah, so aloof. It's so <laughs> just nonchalant about all of this, and I'm like, why do you want him so bad? Why do you want to elevate him? Yeah,
0: pretty disturbing. It was like, hey, bring me that young fellow. Uh, I don't and drug him real nice. I don't want to wrestle. He looks like Paul. Oh, oh, oh boy, oh, boy,
1: oh, the one boy. with the lovely, lovely eyes. The one who looks so much like the young Molotrae. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Ugh. I like that we learn about how he has to replace his mentat to go to Tilex for a new mentat. They undoubtedly have one ready for him by now, which means he already knew he was going to need one. He already put the word out for them that he's probably going to need one soonish. <laughs>
1: <laughs> seems like that's something Piter would look out for. Like, no you know, kidding. Checking back no in kidding. with Mentat home base. Hey, did you get any new orders?
0: <laughs> what do you got in there, huh? Tell me what are their what tell me about the the, the the tell me about the weakness tell me about the frailty of their flesh. I need to know their weaknesses so I can manipulate them properly
1: <laughs> God
0: Outstanding. All right, sir, let's hit chapter twenty two. Final chapter. O seas of Caladan, O people of Duke Leto, Citadel of Leto fallen, fallen forever. From Songs of Muadi by the Princess Irulan. Chapter 22, sir. Yes, indeed. This
1: is what I call the Akira chapter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the sudden awareness. The terrible purpose has evolved.
0: And it's, and it's so sudden. It's clearly come at the, at the behest of the death of his dad. And boy... It gets pretty wild, but there's really good stuff here. It gives us, it's it's written in a way that makes us feel how maybe he would feel, uh, a sense of it. Because how do you convey that? How do you convey something that none of us have ever really experienced? Right. This is right. the true make up part of the book here. This idea of how can I write this and then convey it effectively to people? And I got to hand it to uh,
1: to Herbert here. I think he does a good job with this. Absolutely. There are just some magnificent descriptions of awareness itself and how it expands and what that what that could feel like in these moments where <clears throat> excuse me in these
0: moments where he's just like I can't believe it's taking her so long to see it referring to his mother who we know is brilliantly aware <laughs> right exactly, exactly. It, we just see this explosion of his awareness and this explosion of dare i say power
1: yeah absolutely it, it does become power yeah this
0: idea where he thinks uh, you know, this this picks right up where Paul felt that all his past every experience before this night had become sand curling in an hourglass, and he's just thinking about where he is and how he's in a cave and that Yue was the traitor, and that he's hiding like a child, and now that I'm a duke, and that bothers him, the that galls him. He's he's starting to really feel his oats, so to speak. He's like, this is bullshit. I'm a duke now. I shouldn't be in a cave. And all of this awareness, all of this clarity is is hitting him. It's this great influx. And we have to remember that he's also a very trained mentat. So it's strange to think of a mentat. It's strange to think of what is seemingly different types of awareness held in tension by this young man. On the one hand, you have the analytical brain that catalogs, that stores, that can recall. And on the other hand, you have this prescient awareness that seems to come from nowhere, very not grounded in logic, and how he can combine those two into this hyper-awareness. Right,
1: right. <clears throat> it's a lot of description of knowledge being like accumulated, like so much knowledge that he can like literally— you know, tabulate and 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 categorize and sit there and label all these different things. But then, as we go through this chapter, we realize like that it's not just some big computative power he has now. It's it a expands. Burden. It expands through time. <laughs> like he backwards Indeed. and forward. And it's very burdensome, right?
0: Yes, it, absolutely. It, 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 he he hates it. Part of him hates it, and uh, and that in coming to grips with it. But I love, in, in awareness is an understatement. <laughs> because <laughs> we have this moment where he thinks of the impotent rage as this thopter dived out of the night onto the member. When we last left them, they were running for it, and, a, and there was an aircraft bearing down on them. And he knew who was piloting that thopter, an accumulation of minutiae in the way it was flown, the dash of the landing, clue so small... Even his mother hadn't detected. Then, had told Paul precisely who sat at the controls. He knew exactly who was piloting this thing, just by the way it moved through the air. That is
1: wild. <laughs> that is uh, some pretty finely tuned observation and memory. You could, you could say shit. that again.
0: You could say that again. <laughs> uh, and that's you know that's where we we start pushing the bounds of uh, humanity's capability with Paul. We learn that he he really starts to step beyond uh, a simple human training, right?
1: <clears throat>
0: right, absolutely. And he knows it's Yue, and, and when his mom starts to fumble through it, which is a crazy way to say it, because it's Jessica we're talking about, but uh, she talks about this note, and uh, there can no only be in one exception, the Harkonnens held UA's wife. He hated the Harkonnens. It cannot be wrong about that. You read this note but why hasn't it saved us from the carnage? And, and Paul just thinks she's only now seeing it and poorly at that. Right? He, he can't believe <laughs> she hasn't come to this grip quicker.
1: Exactly. And I do think we should, uh, we should read Yue's note. Please, um, please. He does say, <clears throat> Do not try to forgive me, Yue had written. I do not want your forgiveness. I already have enough burdens. What I have done was done without malice or hope of another's understanding. It is my own Tahadi al-Burhan, my mm-hmm. ultimate test. I give you the Atreides ducal signet as token that I write truly. By the time you read this, Duke Leto will be dead. Take consolation from my assurance that he did not die alone; that one we hate above all others died with him. Yes, uh, not true, unfortunately. Sadly, and and what
0: what is important about this is that this is something that Paul knows that she doesn't. Yeah, I guess that is true. Right the the he had known this fact. Uh, as a by the way thing, while reading the note that had accompanied the ducal signet ring in the pack, right? He hasn't. This isn't something she's read yet, because he he makes it. He tells her very plainly he is dead later in this chapter. And I thought that that caught that on the second reading, right?
1: Mm, I guess that is
0: true. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't catch that. Yeah, because she's saying there can be only one explanation. The Harkonnen's held you his wife. He hated Harkonnen's. I cannot be wrong about that. You read his note but why was he saved... why ha- oh no maybe i'm wrong about that yeah cuz now she's in, i cannot be wrong about that you read his note but why was why but why has he saved us from the carnage oh oh he read the note but he didn't read it to his mom he he's oh. he's he's held back the knowledge that later was dead right i guess so yeah no, yeah he, because that comes up later alone. right she so he read the note alone okay that's that was a little confusing right there you, you can miss it if you're not paying attention you can just assume that she knows because because uh, she, she doesn't know until he actually just says he's, he's gone. And that's when she cries. Like she finally does. That, that's coming up here in a minute. But that was a little confusing at the outset of this. But I think we cleared
1: it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: There we go. But uh, yeah. He had read that what, his father was dead, known the truth of the words, but had felt that them as no more than another
1: datum to be entered into his mind and used absolutely dude the next part too i loved my father paul fought and knew this for truth i should mourn him i should feel something mm-hmm. and what i think is is interesting is that from this moment here we start to notice this divide in paul like he mm-hmm. is now almost like a split person where he has you know this terrible purpose has evolved into this much higher hyper awareness that pervades everything that he sees and thinks now like he can't he cannot look at the world in the same way he used to ever again. Like sure. it has gone. Um, he, he, he's his his mind is a supercomputer tabulating everything, calculating all possibilities, looking towards the future, looking past certain possibilities in the future, seeing all these things, and at the same time, he is still a person with his own individual life and his own individual hopes and and feelings and concerns, and. It's like what I enjoyed about this chapter with this new, you know, this awareness hitting him so fast like it has now, it's just suddenly upon him, is that he doesn't, He's. it's like he's losing track of how to be an individual human being. Like he, he's he's realizing like I don't feel anything like an individual emotion right now, you know, the the way a single person would feel about their own life. He, his his vision is just widened so much that it's like he almost loses himself. And, and and he loses himself to to the feelings
0: that don't exist, might be an apt way to say it, right? Because he felt nothing except here's an important fact. Like I like how he can analyze and conceptualize this idea that I know I should be sad for my dad, but I'm more thinking this is a very important fact that I need to have in my head, which strikes me as is quite mentat of him. But as you've already said, he's not mentats or people, although we refer to them as human computers sometimes in the Dune universe. He is, in fact, a a person. And when you have the awareness of everything going on and you haven't quite figured out how to filter it or how to control it, you, you, uh, you, you are going to be, you're not going to spend much time being introspective about you as a person when you're aware of the facts of the world all the time, right? Yeah. I think it's funny. (laughs) What's funny is if you, if you, you could use this sort of metaphorically in the modern sense, like if you spend all your time watching the news and reading news feeds, you have very little time to consider yourself, right? Because all you're doing is flooding your mind with information versus maybe taking a walk on a path and thinking about you and what, what, what matters to you and how you can do things differently or be better. You have no introspection. All you do is get flooded with information. Now, this information is a lot more relevant and personal to Paul as we're seeing so far and and, you, and he hasn't quite nailed down this sense of terrible purpose purpose other than to know it's pervading him and he and he just wonders, is this what it's like to be the quiza Haderach? what what what's going on here and, and and meanwhile, while he's having these thoughts and this is what I mean by the Akira chapter because he's starting to realize I know things and I have power in my friends are just seemingly nothing to me anymore. And I'm not saying he's saying that about his mom, but it's almost like her flailing observations, which I know is an oversell because she's very observant, but in Paul's state of mind right now, her flailing observations seem to almost annoy him, right? Where she's like, for a while (laughs) I thought, Hawat failed us again. I thought perhaps UA wasn't a souk doctor in uh, Paul's like, he was everything we thought of him and more. And then he thinks, why is she so slow seeing these things? Almost annoyed, right? <laughs> it's just <laughs> exactly. this newfound yeah. awareness that he's going through in this moment is really setting him apart and getting to this terrible purpose and all of the stuff that chap- started back in chapter one with Mohayim's predictions for him.
1: Right, right. And one way that I think the way uh, Herbert writes this chapter that – I think is really smart and really subtle that kind of plays into Paul's, you know, new awareness and also his ability to recall, you know, so much from his past, all of the, every relevant quote, everything. We keep getting these moments uh, of quotes that happened prior in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or were this moment where his mother's words had provoked another train of thought in Paul, a Duke's concern for all the people they'd lost this night. People are the true strength of a great house, Paul thought, and he remembered Howitt's words. Parting with people is a sadness. A place is only a place. Mm. Like he's in the midst of being able to see so far forward and 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 really evaluate their situation so much more accurately. He's also pulling so much from his past. Like it's all, what I find interesting about it is it's all coming up at once, like one big cacophony.
0: Yeah, that's a great point, my friend. That is a great point. And, uh, and they continue thinking about you know, he kind of steps out of this otherworldly perception and into the moment, which is, what are we going to do now? And that's something that they have to satisfy. That is a lingering question. And and they think, well, what what, what are we going to do? I mean, what, what, they're a Sardaukar. We, we have to wait for them to withdraw. And he's just like, you know, this is, there are no survivors in this game, Mom. Like, they, this is a total extermination job. This is total war. Don't count yeah. on any of us escaping. I mean, he's very blunt with her, and she's like, they can't go on indefinitely exposing themselves to the Empress part in this. Like, she has a good point, and he's like, why Why not? People are going <laughs> to escape. Are they? I, I like how she just, she's thinking kind of emotionally here. And in, in, I guess you could say there's some probably logic in thinking somebody may escape, but the only thing informing that logic is just assuming as much without any real knowledge that that's the case. Right, it's just a hope. It's just a hope, actually. Absolutely, and he's sort of saying, "But, but how do we know? We, you know." And she's she's afraid of her son, and that's, I, you know, we're talking all about Paul and his perception and what he thinks and and how he's viewing his mother and, and and some of her perceptions. But what about the way she
1: feels about him, Matt? Talk to me about that a little bit because that has changed. Yes, dude, so much more where And it's not just his awareness; it's it's literally the way he speaks, the mm. way he has this you know she describes it as iron in his voice where she starts to slowly kind of be wary of Paul and, and i think it more so more so comes from not her actually being afraid of you know her son in the sense that he's a danger to her but more so like i don't recognize him anymore i don't sure. realize who this is there's even a moment you know I, I i don't have it right in front of me but there's a a line where she says all the childhood is gone out of his voice right. like he is he is not my child anymore he's still my son but he is he's a man if not something else a man if not something else
0: absolutely yep and this continues you know we get into this side conspiracy where they're talking a little bit where where we learn the guild bank has been sacked they have a communication device and they're listening in on some communiques and they basically hear that uh, there's no survivors in Carthag and the guild bank has been sacked and Jessica's like, oh my God, that's, that was a and hotbed in Karthag. They're car, they hear over it. Watch out for the car and traders' uniforms. They're, and then the radio silence, right? And that's when, um, you know, do you realize what this means? Jessica asks, And Paul just says, I expected it. They want the guild to blame us for destruction of their bank. With the guild against us, we're trapped on Arrakis. Try the other bands. Like he just says it so matter of factly. And she can't believe it. I expected it. She can't believe he even thinks that. Uh, you know, that's the, that's that's a, a remarkable thing. And then just realize in this moment there was enough for for Jessica register and break the language, but the tone was obvious. And this is, of course, while listening in. hearken and victory. They won. Yeah, it's over. <laughs> it's over. And by getting the guild bank against them by targeting a section of the guild on Arrakis they're guaranteeing that the Atreides will never leave Arrakis. And why? Well, because the guild bank is attached to the guild and the guild has the monopoly on space travel because only they can navigate space.
1: That's it. So there's no chance of them ever getting on a craft and being able to get off the planet.
0: Absolutely. That's, that's the hope. That's the hope that the guild bank, that, that, that the attack on the guild bank is provokes this response from the guild. And they're like, well, uh is is Idaho coming? Because we don't want to live in this cave inside this still tent. It's a still tent, I imagine, much like a still suit. And um they, they kind of debate this a little bit back and forth, don't they?
1: Yeah. Well I what I think is interesting about this is this also leads into to Jessica starting to understand more about the guild and its its dependence on Arrakis that she didn't mm, fully realize. The satellites. And, and Paul. <laughs> right. Like Paul understands this completely. Um, You know, he says, you see it now. Satellites watch the terrain below. There are things in the deep desert that will not bear frequent inspection. You're suggesting the guild itself controls this planet? She was so slow. (laughs) No. (laughs) You're so slow, Ma. (laughs) (laughs) No, he said. The Fremen, they're paying the guild for privacy. Paying in a coin that's freely available to anyone with desert power. Spice. This is more than a second approximation answer. It's the straight line computation. Depend on it. And so what I find interesting about this too is this seems like a a slight revelation for Paul as well. I think so. That the, that the front like this is maybe the first time he's fully putting it together with his new, you know, awareness um, that the Fremen themselves actually have leverage over the guild because one thing I find interesting about this chapter, and this is, this is more of an aside from like the direct conversation that we have going on here, but I was kind of hoping to get your thoughts on this. Like it seems to me that there that that a lot of characters were fairly unaware of what the spice truly meant like it, it comes off to me reading this chapter now that they all understood that the spice was important for the guild to be able to to navigate with their spacecraft like that it was important to the guild to be able to navigate and since the guild has monopoly on all space travel whatever is necessary for them to do that space travel is a high commodity, but the that spice seems the to be spice melange, right? Right, but that seems to be the only thing they realized about the spice. Well,
0: like, they know, I, I they know they, about the heightened awareness it gives, but what they don't know is what what it does to them over time and in great quantity. I think that's, I think those mutations they don't know a ton about at this phase of the story, but they do know it brings a heightened awareness. Mm, right. Okay. Right. And and I think that's one of the things we have to remember is that's actually happening now to Paul because of his exposure to the spice out in the desert. Some right. of his akira, <clears throat> some of this akira moment for him is being exacerbated by the spice consumption just in the air. I think.
1: Well, it also, it, it reminded me too of just you know the situation that they're in with you know the Harkonnens destroying everything, with his father being mm-hmm. killed, all this happening on the same night. A lot of times, that's also how mental illness manifests. Like a sure, big, sure, tra- a big traumatic event kicks people into that gear, and it makes me think that this is, in a way, that what's happening to Paul because that's another thing that we see Jessica saying when, when she's describing, you know, Paul's manner of speech and his, mm. his like stern demeanor. Now, is that she's like, I sense madness in him. Yes, that it's it's starting to come off like hysterical, um, and I think it in a way. It kind of is. Like she, she's afraid. It, 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 yeah, she gets very <clears throat> afraid. <clears throat> right, right. And I, and I think there's there is some truth to that fear of, you know, Paul <clears throat> has gone through this horrible traumatic night with his mother. You know, and and his, his father is gone. Their house is destroyed. You know, they're now exiles on the run for their lives, and it's all culminating with his exposure to the spice, probably being out in the desert where it is as well. Um, is culminating into this moment that just kind of finally kicks his awareness into like full gear. <clears throat> Absolutely, yeah. I think I think that's part
0: of it. I, I would uh, I would agree with that. The stressors of the, the attack, the house falling, his father dying, Ewe betraying them, uh, uh, men he grew up with that are like uncles or maybe brothers to him or or, or or something different are are gone, missing, maybe dead. Who knows? They're on the run. Will they survive? Will they not? On top of all of the other stuff going on with his terrible purpose. This fateful right. visit from Mother Mohiam in the beginning.
1: Yeah. But but yeah. he
0: is, you're right, he is insistent on the desert power part of this, right? Dad talked about desert desert power. And and you know the Harkonnen will never rule this planet without it. And they and they and they never have. They had their chance and they didn't. And they missed stuff. And we're not gonna miss stuff, is essentially what he's saying, right? Right.
1: Right. Because they uh they don't underestimate the Fremen.
0: Right. Uh, what I think is interesting about the Fremen maybe ferrying some additional spice to the guild is we already know this guild has access to spice, but it just goes to show you the addictive nature of it because they want more. And that's where the Fremen can e. come in and provide a service. And this leads to many questions about the Fremen. Uh, Paul starts to consider it. He's he's looking at all of the stuff that the Fremen have, all of the gear and the equipment, in their ability to survive, and he thinks, think of all these special application Fremen machines. They showed unrivaled sophistication. Admit it, the culture that made these things betrays depths no one suspected. He's saying, in essence, the Fremen are much more than meets the eye. They're very sophisticated, way more than we think they are. Right. Right? It's it's it's, <laughs> it's, that's, it's almost like that idea of Egypt, like, wait, they were performing surgery? Or, like, what? how did this get lost to time, some of these... There's all you know that 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 the myths of things like Atlantis, like oh they were aliens fucking doing brain operations back in you know twelve thirty one or something, right? Like just this, (laughs) I like this. I I like that that adds such a neat science fiction element to them. This idea that they are way more
1: sophisticated than we think they are because of what we think is sophisticated, right? And you've got to imagine that's partly purposeful on the part of the fremen that they allow themselves to be underestimated to be to be kind of marginalized and disregarded. Absolutely. Because that that absolutely provides cover for them to operate the way they want to. For sure. And we see that played out in any interaction Kinds would have
0: with these people when we would get some of his POV thoughts, right? <clears throat> right. Like he guards so much. We learned that that Muad'Dib, the mouse is a, uh, what, constellation? <laughs> yeah. Noted that the tail pointed north. Indeed. But, um... He just says, well, it's time, time for me to carry my father's wishes. And he just says, mom, yes, dad's dead. And that's that moment where she allows herself the sensation of terrifying loss. And, um, I love this part where he says, he always loved you. He never suspected you. And, um, and that makes her cry. And and that's a really nice moment.
1: She gets to have that sense
0: of peace, right?
1: Right, right. And it's, it's, adds to the tragedy i mean you know where she says the the uh, um she knew this thought for what it was her thought of what a stupid waste of the body's water when she's crying it was the attempt mm. to retreat from grief into anger leto my leto she thought what terrible things we do to those we love ah so fucking sad <laughs> that they never got to to reconcile in person that they that she that they had to leave each other on that note of, we must perform this idea that we distrust one another. Mm, absolutely. Paul still
0: considering that he, although recognizes his mother's grief and his own emptiness, he just can't feel right now. It's, he wonders uh, if it's a flaw. And that's when he starts to consider uh, Paul's mind had gone on in its chilling precision. He saw the avenues ahead of them on this hostile planet without even the safety valve of dreaming. That is a very important pause. He's seeing things without dreaming. So he's having visions of possible future, possible avenues, possible roads, possible branches of where they may end up. A timeless stratum and sampled the winds of the future. And he saw people in probabilities. He knew names of people he'd never met all in a flash. And uh, he got data innumerable, unexplored crannies. There was a time to probe and test and taste, but no time to shape. So it's it's a fire hose of information that he just doesn't have the bandwidth to process. But I love this. I love this. This is really kicked into high gear now. This, it, it seems as if, there is, there is no coincidence, Matt, that this fire hose metaphor seems apt right after he tells mom
1: that dad's dead and sort of says it out loud himself. Uh, that's a good point. That's a really good point that it's like he's said the thing aloud and made it real for the both of them, yes, and that sends his mind spiraling further absolutely and um this
0: just this idea of him existing in his mind working through these mind groping ahead through possible futures that guided hurtling spaceships appalled him. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love that of how like reducing the guild to like a bunch of fucking just driving ships all day doing their math problems. Mm-hmm. I don't, that's not how I want to spend my life. Yeah, but he just see- sees it as one of the possible avenues of of how they can you know escape.
0: This is this
1: is you know people.
0: I know people had a lot of mixed feelings on the on the uh, Pink Floyd song, but God, this all of this shit happening is just us, us and them. Them, them. <laughs> like as he gets all this information, he's just a kaleidoscope of just knowledge in in, and dude, in divination. Honestly, the more
1: the more I think about the choice for that Dune trailer of using that particular Pink Floyd song, I'm like. It's kind of perfect because that you know it's the closing song to Dark Side of the Moon. Right. And it's like it's the, I'm trying to remember the exact lines, but it's like all that you've seen, all that you've done, all that's to come, all that's been before. And I'm like that's it's Paul. <laughs> it's Paul's absolutely. mind exploding open into you know, massive awareness of all time. It's it's yes, absolutely good stuff. Good and uh, well, he
0: uh, his personal awareness has been turned over illuminating in a terrifying way he stared all around him and i like it i like that now because think about it he's having these i I really wonder how they're going to shoot this but he's having all these visions and then of course he's also really he's he's still it's nighttime he's still in a still tent he's still within a rock enclosed hideaway he can still hear his mother grieving on top of all the awareness that's coming at him a million things a mile a million miles an hour and in, in trying to, to, to consider all to sort it all out on top of trying to understand his own grief, this hollow place somewhere separated from his mind. Uh, it's almost That's, like his yeah. mind is protecting him from it in this moment as he, as awareness floods
1: his senses. Right. And like, I, I love that it's unstated, but I do, I think there's a subtext of fear within Paul. Like we see Jessica sure. being afraid this whole chapter about like what is happening to her son and how she's starting to not recognize him. But I think there's an unspoken fear that Paul has and we get, you know, the allusion to it of him, you know, wondering about his grief and how it's, you know, he loves his father. He knows that's true, but the ability to feel that grief, he doesn't see it. It's doesn't feel that the ability is there. And I think that is a fear that he has of losing his own humanity to this, that am I going to become something, am I going to become something not truly human anymore and unable to actually have these personal feelings? And maybe even an accompanying guilt, if you think about it, if you didn't feel
0: sad about somebody you know objectively that you love and there was something keeping you from feeling grief for that person, you might feel guilty about that, Right. And and I wonder if that's something he struggles with as well. I I know it's not really explicitly stated in these chapters, but I'm just sort of considering it as we speak here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's got to be, it's got to be a chilling feeling to, to feel your own emotions uh, as something slipping away from you that you just like don't have them anymore. I mean, he actually thinks he's a freak. He thinks that to
0: himself, the word freak, I'm a monster. He's mad. What have you done? Why, why am I here? And, I she's like I gave birth to you. What what do you want me to tell you? That's what happened. Did you know what you were doing when you trained me? He he's he, he's he's turning this on her a little bit. And he's she just admits I hoped what any parent would that you'd be different, superior, I guess. You didn't want a son, you wanted the Kweezach Haterock. You wanted a male Benny Jesuit. Right? He he kind of just throws that at her. But we know that that's not really the case. I mean, he knew she knew Leto wanted a boy. That's what it came down to. Right? That it was a choice uh, uh, out of love. Mm. She starts to get some awareness of hysteria entering his voice. Hysteria is a strong word, and not to be used lightly. And the fact that it's used here makes you really understand the scene that's taking place in this cave, that Jessica is watching her son endure this. Awareness and emptiness and emotion and fear and uh, in, in everything
1: hitting him at once. Yeah, yeah this is when he reveals to her the real power of the spice. Yes. Where he tells her, I've just had a waking dream. Do you know why? And she says, no, you just must calm yourself if there's a way. And he goes, no, the spice. It's in everything here. Mm. The air, the soil, the food, the geriatric spice. It's like the truth drug. It's a poison. Yes. I see it, he
0: repeated. And that's when he drops a fucking bomb. <laughs> <laughs> he drops a bomb. And what does he tell his mom? Wait, are you talking about where he's talking about that that they're trapped there? Uh, Well, less so that they're trapped there, but where he says, and maybe I'm jumping a little too far ahead, but where he basically just says, you're the Baron's daughter.
1: Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's one of the biggest shocks. (laughs) He just tells her,
0: right? Of course, they're talking about being trapped there and stuff like that and, and how they'll find a home among the Fremen and how the Missionario Protectiva will will serve us since it's going to help us find friends here among the Fremen. They're starting to get positive about those things. And uh, and, and he just, he kind of just says, like, I can sense this future. I, I have no control over it. And, 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 and I see this as a road, like I said earlier, roads and branches and the totality of veils being ripped away and naked time set
1: before me. And she's like, yeah, you're not a kid anymore. And <laughs> geez, Louise. He also... He also reveals, uh, shockingly, because Jessica has told absolutely no one, mm. reveals that he knows she's pregnant, that yes. she will bear a daughter, my sister here on Arrakis. St. Aaliyah. So he is just dropping all sorts yes. of proof bombs on poor yes. Jessica. Yes, yes. You,
0: you're pregnant. Oh, no, and by the way, you're the Baron's own daughter. The Baron sampled many pleasures in his youth and once burned himself to be seduced. But it's for the geriatric purpose of the Bene Gesserit by one of you. Ooh. Wow. So good. What kind of revelation? What did you think of that revelation? Is that a Did it, Lucas borrow that? Luke, I am your father kind of
1: shit? <laughs> it did definitely shock me. It got me trying to remember. I was like, okay, wait, there is some relation between the houses, right? Like, they yeah. are actual cousins. Like, that sure. was true. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it actually does make sense in the, the idea that Jessica had no knowledge of her, of her parents, that she was just taken in by the order of the Bene Gesserit um, and, you know, eventually taken, you know, by the Duke, uh, fucking terrifying <laughs> though, that yes. to realize you are a descendants of this monster, the monster who's ruining you currently.
0: And this leads to a very revealing moment in this story that that really has repercussions, seems to potentially have repercussions from Mother Mohiam all the way down, because he says they thought they were reaching for me, but I'm not what they expected and have arrived before my time and they don't know it. And that's when she's like, oh wait, he's a Kwisatz Haderach. And he kind of reads that on her face and he just says, I'm something unexpected. And they won't know about me until it's too late, which of course he gleaned insight from just because he's seen the future a little bit. And uh, we'll find place among the, the Fremen, the Shia Hulud, Old Father Eternity. They say, be prepared to appreciate what you meet. And he's very open about, he's just blunt would be a better way to say it. This is, this is, we can use this to our advantage,
1: right? Yeah, absolutely. That we, we know something that literally no one else in the universe knows. Not
0: not only do I know all this, I know you're pregnant. I know what you're going to name the girl. I know it all. I know it. It's crazy. (laughs) Oh, it's terrifying. Terrifying. (laughs) I am a seed, he says.
1: I am a seed. <laughs> Dude, where where is uh oh this is the this is the one I wanted to read as well when he starts talking about uh his visions of the future and just kind of the shape of them the other path uh held long patches of gray obscurity except for peaks mm. of violence he had seen a warrior religion there a fire spreading across the universe with the atreides green and black banner waving at the head of fanatic legions mm. drunk on spice liquor Gurney, Halleck, and a few others of his father's men, a pitiful few, were among them, all marked by the hawk symbol from the shrine of his father's skull. Rad. Ah, that, that image right there alone. (laughs) uh, It's like the most metal (laughs) thing ever. (laughs) (laughs) Burning city, screaming
0: babies. (laughs) Blowtorch. He's like, dude.
1: What I like is that you know we we get a lot of of Paul in this chapter describing that he's seeing all these different avenues like unfolding before him, and some even dipping out of view. And I think one of my favorite descriptions of that is he even describes it as um, like a billowing cloth that is like twirling, twirling in the wind and constantly moving. So it's like he can see the paths, but even the paths themselves are twisting and turning, and they're all impermanent and they're constantly colliding and altering you know the the future is not set he can just see all of the possibilities that are out before them but i find it interesting that the only two descriptions we get of any avenues that he sees is the one where he said he'd seen two main branchings along the way ahead in one he confronted an evil old baron and said hello grandfather (laughs) thought the thought of that path and what lay along it sickened him and then the second path which i already talked about you know the one of seeing this violent universe universe wide jihad that is going on under underneath the atreides flag right um that those are the two possibilities that strike him the most which makes me think that's the one we're headed down because he's <laughs> sickened by the idea of of confronting his grandfather you know saying hello to him um but <laughs> as much as he doesn't want to as much as he doesn't you know, like the idea of the universe being scorched in fire under his own you know, family's banner, it seems that's the way he's being pulled. Yep. And, and, and mom's just kind of watching along going,
0: um, so the Fremen are going to help us and stuff? <laughs> Hello, son? <laughs> and he just says, yes, that's one of the ways, he nodded. Yes, they'll call me Muad'Dib, the one who points the way. Yes, that's what they'll call me. And he closed his eyes thinking, now, my father, I can mourn you. And he felt the tears coursing down his cheeks. I love I that love he it. gets that sense of peace once he decides the direction he wants to go.
1: Yes, good way of putting it. Um, right? Yeah, I like that. And and also that there's like, it's something that Paul himself does, doesn't even consider explicitly throughout this. But I think it is also this moment of him being able to unload this to somebody, of him being able to unload all of his visions, all of his thoughts, all of his fears here in this moment to his mother um, that finally allows him this human moment to just be able to grieve. For sure. For sure. Good stuff, man. Well,
0: that brings us to the end of book one, Matthew. The end of book one. And, uh, and on our way to the next uh, section that we're going to be discussing. And let's tell people what we're going to look at next time. So episode six, we're getting into book two. We're calling it chapter 23. That starts with this. When my father, the Padishah Emperor, heard of Duke Leto's death and the manner of it. So that's where it starts. And we're going to read through, which meaning which means including, uh, what we would call chapter 26, which is why do you despise by this? Are you truly known? So that's our reading assignment for episode six.
1: Hell yeah.
0: Hell yeah. And, uh, this will well, be the farthest you've read into the book, correct? So this is exciting. That's
1: right. That's wow. something I've never mentioned on this podcast. I had in truth. Now I can reveal my hideous lie. <laughs> I had actually read basically all of book one, um, before doing the podcast. But from this point forward, it is all new to me. So as much as you know, I've seen the Dune movie, the David Lynch one. Yeah. You know, I have an idea of what's to come, but kind of <laughs> I don't. I don't truly know how this all plays out, and I'm very excited.
0: Outstanding. Well, I look forward to it, and we'll uh, be we'll be back in a couple of weeks to uh, to get it done. So I'm excited, and uh, yeah, good stuff this week. Looking forward to the next iteration, and of course, uh, we'll see you guys next time. Matt, tell these good people goodbye.
1: The spice
0: you've been listening to mind killer a dune podcast by lsg media for information on upcoming chapters and to continue the conversation visit us on discord at libertystreetgeek.net slash discord